draw your attention this morning back to Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, and the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Our gracious Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, we thank You that we can come to worship You here this morning. We thank You for Your Word. Lord, and we have promises in this word. And Lord, we will hold you to those promises this morning. Lord, we come thirsty and hungry to be fed from your word. Lord, we are asking for it this morning. We are seeking it this morning, Lord. And Christ told us that the one that asks, it will be given. And the one that seeks it, they shall find Lord, we long to see Christ in His Word this morning. We long to see our Savior. Lord, accept our praise and our worship this morning. Give us discernment and wisdom. Open our mouth that we may speak truth from Your Word. You may you open eyes and ears to hear and to see. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for salvation through Christ. We thank you that we might be found in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Do you ever remember as a child, I remember the girls doing this, I can't honestly remember whether I did this in school or not, but uh, I know that it was, uh, I think each and each of the girls did this, where they were tasked at school with developing a container to put an egg in, so that that egg would be protected, 
so that they could drop that container and the egg would somehow survive. Did you actually achieve the goal? <laughs> Two out of three. Two out of three. All right, well, that's, uh, that's decent odds, I guess. Uh, but isn't this what we do with things that are precious to us? We seek to protect those things. Um, things that are important to us, things that we love, we place them in something to protect them, uh, to preserve them, so that uh, when something happens, they aren't ruined. We just got back from a bookstore. I love bookstores, especially ones that have books that are edifying. One of the things I always do, though, when I buy books from a bookstore like that is I ask for a box to put those in. I have this, I don't know, weird, uh, weird thing about having things in, in, uh, in pristine condition. And so I like to have my books in good condition. That's why I don't like to have them shipped, because they're oftentimes damaged when they come in a shipment. But so we, I ask for a box to put these books in, and I bring them home in a box so that they arrive in the condition in which they were originally uh, given to me. One of my oddities, I guess. But there are probably things in each of our lives that we do that with, uh, that we, we seek to protect these things, these treasures that we have, or these things that we enjoy, these things that we love, by putting them in a keepsake box or in a safe or somewhere where they are protected so that those things that we love and cherish and that we hold as having value aren't ruined. And I pray this morning that God will allow us to come full circle this morning and get back to this thought uh, and this question uh, that I have of what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be in Christ. So keep that in your mind as we make our way through this passage here this morning. And Lord willing, we will tie that together in the end. But in this passage here this morning, Paul goes on in verse 14 of chapter 3 to say, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. This is where the prayer of the Apostle Paul restarts after he initially started it in verse 1 of chapter 3. We discussed this briefly several weeks ago uh, when we looked at this passage. Paul, you will remember, has been building and building what our triune God the Father, uh, triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, has done what he is doing and what he will continue to do in this that he has planned before the foundation of the world. When he started to relay this prayer for the recipients of this letter in verse 1, he was moved by the Spirit to build a few more blocks upon what he has already revealed to them. Blocks regarding the gift and the source of the ministry that he has been given. Then he resumes his prayer after this aside telling the church at Ephesus that it is for this reason that he bows his knees before the Father. Well, what, what is this reason then? Uh, is it what comes before chapter 3 
that we are to see as the reason for the prayer? Is it for what Christ has been doing and what he has done in bringing the Gentiles in, making them one, one body, doing away with those laws of commandments and, and ordinances that are expressed in ordinances? Is it that he has brought them near those that were separated from Christ, those that were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, those that were strangers to the covenants of promise, those who were without hope, who were without God in the world. Yeah, that's a big part of it. But is that all that it is? I think that there's more. Paul, after relating these most blessed most glorious and miraculous gifts of God, starts his prayer, and then, as I stated, was moved by the Spirit to pause and build further upon these things. It is what we, we said plus what he has just added. And I believe that we are to understand for this reason that he states in verse uh, 14. It is this plus, and I think the big key here is this what is this plus what is found in Ephesians 3:12. Paul starts once again in verse 1, stating for this reason, and in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, because in Christ. Look at verse 12. In him we have boldness and access, and confidence through our faith in Him. If there is ever a reason, brothers and sisters, to bow our knees before the Father, it is this, that in Christ we may approach the throne of grace. We may approach the Father in prayer. We have access to come before Him. Boldly, boldly in Christ, we may approach the eternal throne of God in confidence that we will be granted access and know that we may approach Him. It is all in Christ. And this is what Paul, I believe, was led to further build for, build for us as he paused his prayer. He is addressing the Father through Christ. Do you see how this ties in through all that he has been revealing to us through inspiration of the Holy Spirit? This very epistle starts with, look back at verse 3. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This works out in the life of the believer, just like it does in Paul's life. All this, the revelation of what we have been blessed with and the riches of His grace, which he has lavished upon us, to use Paul's words, leads us to bow our knees before him, to come before him in prayer with confidence that we have access through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on. From whom every family 
in heaven and on earth is named. Paul bows his knees to the Father, before the Father, and my ESV translation reads, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There is a lot of discussion about this among uh, scholars and among theologians uh, regarding uh, what, what this actually means, but I believe that the best translation and understanding of this in the context of what we read here should be something like this, from whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named. This fits best with what Paul has already been telling us and revealing to us. It is the whole of the redeemed of the Lord. Given a new name, we are all united. We are all of one body. Remember, this has been what Paul is stressing as he moved through chapter 2. All have now become one in Christ. Christians, those in heaven and on earth, all named and having the same Father. All joined to the same family. Adopted into the family and united under the Father. This is a blessing, is it not? And then he goes on, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Paul goes on in these verses with his prayer for the Ephesians and whoever else reads and hears these words. Prayer that from the vast riches of God's glory, the recipients of this letter might be strengthened with power through the Spirit. Remember that the original recipients of this letter lived in a world very, very hostile to the gospel and to anyone who proclaimed it. I think sometimes we feel like we are, we are somehow unique in our circumstances here today that our world and our society and, and those around us are hostile to the gospel and hostile to the message of, of Christ. But this is always the case in a lost and fallen world. The world is always hostile to the Lord's message. It's always the case. A world of those who love darkness more than light. Those who would suppress the truth. Those who according to Romans 1, would exchange the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Look at what's going on in our world today. Look at what was going on back in Ephesus. It's, it's so similar. Look at, look at today. There is a religion around what you're identifying as today. It's become a religion and a God to them. Resembling man. As opposed to the God who has revealed himself. Those in the world suppressing even that knowledge. And God giving them up to the lusts of their flesh. Well, it's because of this that Paul prays that these believers might be strengthened in the inner being. He tells us in the second epistle to the church at Corinth in chapter 4, 
verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Sounds like what he, what he told them in verse 13, doesn't it? So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul is praying that the Spirit, that power might be given to them through the Spirit to strengthen their inner being, the inner man. Though we may be weakened in the flesh, Paul prays for the strength from the Spirit that indwells the believers. The Comforter which has been given to us. The Spirit of God, that's what Comforter actually means, is one who comes with power. That's what was promised, that Christ would send the Comforter after He ascended. The Spirit of God coming with power to indwell the believer and continually strengthen and to further strengthen the believer. Well, to what end is Paul praying for this? Paul says that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This prayer for power is not the end of his prayer. No, the prayer for power has a particular purpose. That they, these Christians, and us as we read this and understand this and are given strength to comprehend these things, that we would be more deeply rooted and grounded in love. This is not that they would be initially indwelt with Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, but that they would be more firmly established, that the knowledge of Christ and the love of Christ would grow deep into their heart, into their very inner man, firmly and confidently grasping all that they are, all their hope, all their confidence, every facet of their lives would be constrained and enlivened by the love of Christ. It's like a tree that's planted whose roots just continue to grow deep down into the earth. This is what Paul is praying for these believers, that the Spirit would work in them with power in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts, being rooted and grounded in love. What is it then that Paul's desire for them? Uh, what, is, what is his desire for them along with all the saints that we read in verse 18? May have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of Christ. Power to comprehend, strength to comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul says, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? Its breadth reaches from before the foundations of the world when God the Father gave to God the Son a people. That's how far it reaches. It's long enough that it will be the theme of our songs for eternity. That's how long it is. 
It's high enough that it lifts the redeemed even up to heaven. And it is deep enough that even the most vile sinner might be reached. The breadth, the height, the depth, the length of the love of Christ. Something that we can't begin to comprehend. It is a vast love. It is an incomprehensible love. A love that is displayed in many ways, but it is a love which is most gloriously displayed in one particular time in history. A time longed for and pictured in types and shadows in the Old Testament. A time we can now look back on with a clearer understanding than even those who had the Law and the Prophets have. I think about the transfiguration when I think about this. This this singular point at which the love of Christ is so displayed. There at the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were on the mount with Christ. And they look and they see Christ as He's being transfigured there. And, and they see Moses and Elijah with Him. And one of the Gospels gives us an indication about what they... We were told that they were speaking to Christ, Moses and Elijah. One of the Gospels gives us an indication of what they were speaking. They were speaking about His departure. What does that mean? I think that they're speaking to Christ and saying, Lord, the moment has arrived that the law pictured the moment has arrived. Elijah is saying, the moment has arrived that I prophesied and all the other prophets prophesied about it's about to happen. Go on, Lord. Go on and do that for which you came. We'll return to this in a minute. But let's move on in our text where Paul says that you may be filled with the fullness of God in verse 19. This fullness is the abundance of the gifts of God's grace. Or to use the language that Paul has already used, as we have already mentioned, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. That's in Christ. The fullness of God is Christ in us. From His fullness, we have received grace for grace. Grace upon grace. The more we know of Christ, the more we know, not just in our heads, for our minds can't even begin to comprehend this love, but the more we know experientially, the more we experience the love of Christ, the more we are filled with the fullness of Christ. And the more of His fullness we receive, the more we might shine to a dark world around us. As individuals and collectively, as the body of Christ, we might be filled with the fullness of God to be a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. To glorify God. And now Paul ends his prayer, verse 20, 21 and takes a little bit of a turn. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power 
at work within us. To Him be the glory, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul, knowing the insufficiency of man to attain this knowledge, knowing the strength of man is insufficient to grasp these truths and to comprehend the breadth and length and its height and depth of this love of Christ, he turns in faith to the one who is able to do and to grant these very things. Charles, Charles Hodge says of this, Paul's prayer has apparently reached a height beyond which neither faith nor hope nor even imagination could go. And yet he is not satisfied. An immensity still lay beyond. God was able to do not only what he had asked, but infinitely more than he knew how either to ask or to think. Having exhausted all forms of prayer, he casts himself on the infinitude of God in full confidence that he can and will do all that omnipotence itself can affect. His power, not our prayers, nor our highest conceptions, is the measure of the apostles' anticipations and desires. This idea, says Hodge, weaves itself into doxology, which has in it more of heaven than of earth. Paul does not tell us that God is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. He doesn't even say that he is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He takes it to the most superlative level. He says that God is able to do far more abundantly. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated, Our greatest trouble in the Christian life is our failure to realize that God is not man. Luther said to one of the most learned people of his age, scholar, a humanist by the name of Erasmus, he said, Your God is too small to Erasmus. Your God is too small. Paul has no small God in mind. He has no weak sovereign in mind when he turns in a doxology to, to glorify God. But he has a God of omnipotence in mind. A God who has no bounds, a God who can accomplish and work and is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever even think to ask of. That's the God that Paul has in mind. Here is a God who rules from the heavens, an eternal, omniscient God, holy, limitless, a God who speaks in things are made. That's who Paul turns to. 
The whole earth was made by speaking it into existence. This is the God who Paul turns to to affect that which he longs to see in the people he's writing to. This is no God that is like a man. It is the power at work in us that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 1. If you turn back to Ephesians 1, flip the page back to 1, verses 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. This is Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. And it's providential that we find ourselves here in our text this morning where Paul lays out before us that God is able to do far more abundantly. Or as another translation puts it, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to His power, the work, the power at work, the same power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That's power. And it's the same resurrection power that is worked in every person who is redeemed of the Lord. And then to reflect on these things, as Paul goes on at the close of chapter 3, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To Him be the glory. See what great things our God has done. Things He has done, things He is doing, and things He will continue to do. That He alone is able to do. Able to do that which far surpasses even what we can begin to think of. This is our end and our purpose, is it not? To glorify Him. What's man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this will be the work of the redeemed for all eternity to glorify Him. As the body of Christ, in Christ, according to Paul throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You ever thought what it's going to be like in eternity? If you don't like coming to church, if you don't like being with God's people here on earth, what's it going to be like in heaven? That's all we're going to do is worship the King. That's it. Worship and glorify and honor the One who gave us life. It's a good thing that all these remainders of indwelling sin will be done away with. As much as we enjoy being with God's people now, as much as we enjoy the worship 
that we have the opportunity to worship and gather together, how much more will we worship when this sinful flesh is gone? Be a glorious, glorious day, won't it? Well, in conclusion, let's look back at what it is that has been this most glorious display of the love of Christ. Paul prayed here in our text this morning that his recipients might be given strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This Resurrection Sunday follows Good Friday, doesn't it? Good Friday is the day in which we celebrate the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is an odd thing to think that we would celebrate death. That's, that's, a, that's an odd thing in this world, that we would celebrate death. But in this death, in the death of Christ, we see the most glorious display of the love of God, do we not? All through this epistle, we have been seeing over and over a concept that is difficult to grasp. And I think it's something that is contained in this prayer of Paul to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is this love of God. Paul prays in this epistle for that, that this might be given to the saints. And it's imperative that we have an understanding of this concept, which is to be in Christ. In Him. In the Beloved. Through Him. This is a hard thing. How can I be in Christ? What does that mean? What does that look like to be in Christ? We see this. If you, if you turn back, just let's just look at the first chapter. The first chapter, first verse, are faithful in Christ Jesus. In verse 4, even as He chose us in Him. In verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, in the beloved. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Verse 9, in Christ. Verse 10, to unite all things in Him. Verse 11, in Him. We could go on and on through this chapter, and see a reference to us being the, beloved, the, the, the redeemed of the Lord being in Christ. In Christ, through Christ, of Christ. But what is this concept of being in Christ? What does this look like? Let me see if I can help us understand a little bit more of this this morning through an illustration. I don't think there's any better place to, to find an illustration than in Scripture. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 7. We read earlier 
in our congregational reading from Genesis 7, where Noah entered the ark. Now, an ark is a, is a vessel. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean it's a boat. An ark is a, is a vessel. Uh, it's a container to protect that which is inside. Why was there a need for an ark in the account we read and that we read earlier from Genesis chapter 7? Why was there a need for this? Well, look with me at Genesis 6 verse 5. I think this is the start of where it's revealed to us why God instructed Noah to build an ark. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty sad statement. This God who created the world, this God who placed man in this world, And man has turned to absolute and utter rebellion against him. To the point that every imagination of their hearts was evil through and through. Completely just, just, um, to the very bottom, from the very top of their heart to the very bottom of their heart, evil. The thoughts of their heart. Now look down in same chapter, chapter 6, verse 11 through 13. I think this gives us even more detail. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined. If God determines something, it is going to come to pass. And he tells Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God purposed to bring down His wrath on the account of the, on account of the sinfulness of man. But Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God instructed him to build an ark for Noah and his family. So when the ark was finished, and the appointed time came that we read about earlier. The appointed time came, Noah and his sons and their wives were brought into the ark, and God shut the door. And then the wrath of God began to fall on the earth because of the sinfulness of man. And his wrath against sin, according to Genesis 7.23 that we read, He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Everything, absolutely everything perished under the wrath of God. Not a single thing in whose nostrils was the breath of life survived. Do you really think that God doesn't take sin seriously? Look at the world around us. They think God winks at sin. God is not such a one as we think He is. He will not abide sin. He will not overlook sin. He will not excuse the guilty. But look again at Genesis 7.23. The last part of it. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Listen to me, friends. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. He is the ark. He is the vessel. The waters came down upon those outside the ark, but it also came down upon the ark itself. Do you realize that? There wasn't some magic hole in the ceiling of the sky wherever the ark was, the rain wasn't falling. The rain fell everywhere on all of mankind outside the ark and on the ark. The rain and the water beat down upon the ark, the same wrath that, that beat down upon the wicked beat down upon the ark. But those inside the ark, they were covered from the wrath of God. They were covered by the vessel that God the Father put them in. There's only two places that wrath will be focused. In the end, for all mankind, there's only two places. If you are outside of Christ, the wrath of God will be borne down upon you. But if you are in Christ, it's born upon Him. And you are sheltered from the wrath of God in Christ. Do you get the picture of what it means to be in Christ? It's the same as Noah and his family being in the ark when the floods came and the rain beat down. They were in the ark. God has placed His people before the foundation of the world in Christ. That the wrath of God would be born upon Him.
in one of the songs we sang this morning. It is finished, was the cry. Now in heaven exalted high, it is finished. What, what did he mean? He meant that the penalty for sin, the wrath of God that abides upon man because of their sin, he paid that price. It is finished for those that are in Christ Jesus. Here is love. Do you see what Paul is getting at by this in Ephesians 3 here? When he says it's a love, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Herein is love that Christ became for us an ark. Became for us something that God the Father placed us in. Himself, Jesus Christ, being placed in Him that the wrath of God would beat down upon Him on the cross. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? It means that God was satisfied for Christ's payment for our sins. That's what it means. His wrath was poured out and His wrath was satisfied. It wasn't, this world has a terrible misconception about the cross and the penalty that Christ paid on the cross. It wasn't a payment to Satan. It wasn't a payment to the devil. It was a payment for the wrath of God revealed against sin. Our sin. If you are in Christ, your sins were paid for at Calvary. First Peter 2.24 tells us, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. This is the most glorious display of the love of Christ that Paul was writing to, to us about from our text this morning. Here is the place wherein which we might in some way comprehend the breadth and the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ. That He offered Himself to bear our sins and the penalty of those sins under the wrath of God the Father. What a precious thing to be in Christ. Not only in His death, but also in what we're celebrating. Not what we're celebrating just on Good Friday, but what we're celebrating on Resurrection Day as well. To also be in Him, in His resurrection. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. Paul says, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 
But praise be to God, he was raised. Death had no ability to hold him. God being satisfied with what he, Christ, had accomplished. Romans 4.25, who has delivered, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 6.4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In him, in his death, in him, in his resurrection, that we died in him and now we live in him. Placed in him for this purpose before the foundation of the world. Do you see why this is incomprehensible? How do you grasp the infinitude of his love? Let me ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ Jesus? Is He your ark? Is He your substitute? If He's not, then the wrath of God still abides on you and it will be a terrible day if you remain outside of Christ when the day of His wrath comes. Revelation tells us about this and this always echoes back to me to that what I think of when, when Noah entered the ark and God shut the door and the multitude of people that were outside the ark when those rains started to come down. I picture them trying to find the highest place and going up to the highest place, but the highest place isn't enough. It covered the highest place by, what was it, 15 cubits? You can't stand on the highest place and still be able to draw breath. The waters are too deep. God's wrath is too severe. And there's coming a day when judgment's coming again. And the wrath of God will once again be borne out upon humanity that finds themselves outside of Christ Jesus. Revelation 6, 15-17 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath is coming, and who can stand? This is the case for those that are outside of Christ. If this is your case, if you are yet outside of Christ, the same God who Paul says is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think is a God who made other promises. Promises from the Old Testament and from the New. Isaiah 55.1 Come, everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah later in that chapter, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. John 4.10 Jesus answered that Samaritan woman. And He said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked and He would have given you living water. Later in John, in chapter 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then to close out Revelation, he says in Revelation 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. These and so many more promises in Scripture to those who may now be outside of Christ. There is a day coming when there will be no more opportunity to seek the Lord where He may be found. Now is the day of salvation. Pray, God, draw me to the Savior that I might be in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for strength this morning. Lord, give us strength through the Spirit to comprehend these things to in some way understand the immensity of the love of Christ. Lord, give us grace. Give us wisdom that we may see these things. Lord, that we might be given opportunity to share of Your grace and Your mercy with those around us. Lord, we know that there is coming a day when it will be too late. But as long as there is today, You are still bringing people to You. Lord, may we be used by You to to point others to Christ. To point others to the one that they must be in. If they would have peace, if they would have eternal life. Lord, may we be a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Oh Lord, may we be a light to this dark world. May we be salt and light. Lord, be with us this week. Give us opportunities to share of your grace and your mercy. Lord, draw us closer to your word. 
Lord, may our hearts meditate on it day and night. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for placing us in Him, for redeeming us, for adopting us, for sharing with us the riches of Your grace, lavishing Your grace upon us. Lord, we thank You. In Your name we pray. Amen.